NHPR's The Exchange podcast is brought to you in part by Granite State College, Keene State College, Plymouth State University, and the University of New Hampshire. This is your university system. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Peter Biello, and this is The Exchange. For 25 years, Laura Kanoy served as the host of this program, interviewing people from all walks of life, state politicians, working parents, people in recovery from addiction, people on their way to the presidency. Laura hosted this program for the last time last week, and today we're going to reflect on her remarkable career. Listeners, it's time to pay tribute to one of the best in the business of live radio. What memories do you have of Laura's hosting, and what questions do you have for her? can send us an email. The address is exchange at nhpr.org. You can post on our Facebook page at NHPR Exchange. It's all one word. Or give us a call. That's the quickest way to get your question or comment on the air. Our number is 1-800-892-6477. That's 1-800-892-6477. Laura, thank you very much for being on the program today. You're sitting in my chair, Peter. <laughs> this is a bittersweet <laughs> moment for sure. I'm just kidding. Um, we, Thank you for doing this. We, we would love to hear you host for another 25 years. Alas, uh, you, you, are, <laughs> you are taking this, uh, your, your life in a different direction. We're going to talk about where your life is going because you're not retiring. Right? No. To be clear, you're no. not retiring. Not old enough, not rich enough. <laughs> so we'll talk about what you will be doing later in the program. Uh, but we wanted to get a sense of uh, the, the past 25 years, what they were like for you. Uh, listeners, of course, will weigh in over the course of the hour. Um, but we wanted to start by going back 25 years and, and, and learning about the Laura Kanoy of 1995-1996. Uh, so what what were you doing uh, shortly before joining NHPR? Oh, um, I was a weekend newscaster at NPR. So that was my sort of salary job. And then I had a really robust freelance business doing um, mostly reporting for NPR and the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Um, those were my two main clients. I was actually the arts correspondent for the CBC, which was super fun because I got to go to the, you know, any art opening in D.C., I got an invitation and um, that was really fun. I also did some work for, you know, just stories here and there for a bunch of other outlets, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, but mainly I was weekend newscasting and freelance reporting for NPR and CBC. Okay, so you were in D.C. at the time. How did you end up Getting to New Hampshire. What, how did you make that transition? Yeah, well, I'm, most people know I'm from New Hampshire. I graduated from Keene High School. And um, I was just, you know, I was like in my early 30s. And I thought, boy, it'd be nice to just have a big change. And um, as you know, Peter, I'm a big outdoors girl. So love the camping and the hiking and the swimming and all that. So I was thinking, well, maybe there's something in New Hampshire for me. So I called Mark Handley, who was the president of NHPR at the time. And I said, you know, what you got, Mark? What are you thinking? And he said, well, why don't you come up and be a reporter? And I said, well, I've kind of already done that, but thank you. Um, but I don't, And to this day, Peter, I don't know what made me say this, but I said it. I said, if I had my own show, you know, that might be different. I might consider. And he said, well, I'll get back to you on that. Um, so, so you said it kind of as a lark, like, oh, yeah, yeah I don't maybe know. It you'll just give me a show. Just, I don't know. <laughs> And because um, I'd done some sub hosting for um, Diane Reem. No, not Diane Reem at that point. That came later. But um, WAMU had another show, an evening show, and I had subbed for that show. And um, I'd subbed for Performance Today, which was an NPR the music, music show, show. right? Yep. So, so anyway, it just came to mind. He said, I'll get back to you. And nine months later, 
um, I was still away on my honeymoon, and Mark Hanley tried, was trying to reach me, and he couldn't find me. So finally he called my dad, who obviously has the same last name, and um, he said, where's Laura? <laughs> and my dad said, well, she's still on her honeymoon because my dad is a minister, so he had married us. So he said, I just married them a week ago. They're still in their honeymoon. As soon as she gets back, I'll have her call you. So the rest is history. That's exciting. Okay, so was there a long uh, buildup and development of the exchange as a show? No, 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 no. Okay, how did it happen? No, not 25 years ago. No. (laughs) We, um, I came up in mid-July to just kind of do a little pilot. We did a couple days worth of a pilot. Um, And then... Um, they said, let's do it, and um, we hired Scott McPherson to be the first producer of the show, and Scott and I had two weeks to get together. Two weeks? Two weeks. Yep. That doesn't sound like nearly nope. enough time. Nope. Pick a theme music, pick a format, find guests, you know, do all the stuff. Two weeks, boom, live on the air. So it wasn't the Bob Lord music that we have now, because that was... No. And some people... <laughs> Some of my older colleagues will joke about this. We had a piece. We couldn't find good theme music. You'd be surprised. I would go home at night with stacks of CDs. But um, we finally came up with um, Grover Washington Jr., which one of my listeners famously said sounded like burlesque music, which I have to say she was right. Um, But anyway. (laughs) So how long do you have the burlesque music, just out of curiosity? I can't remember, like at least 10 years. Wow, okay. Well, th- those were different times, right? But now if we need music, we can just log on to like Free Music right, Archive or something like right. that. But back then it was a different world. Um, so so uh, how would you describe putting together the show on a daily basis back then? What was it like? You know, it was pretty much the same way it is now, except we did not have the research capabilities of the internet. We couldn't, quote unquote, just Google something. So collecting information for the show, we had to... Um, don't laugh. We had to find newspaper clips. <laughs> newspaper clips. <laughs> newspaper clippings. And we had to call people, talk to people on the phone, pre-interview people, um, find out what their expertise was. We still do that today, obviously. Um, but otherwise, it's pretty much the same, you know, researching a topic, albeit with more um, slower tools, and um, finding great people to talk about the topic and bring them into the studio and... You know, making it sing on the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, listeners, we're speaking with Laura Kanoy today about her 25 years as host of The Exchange, her career in journalism. And we'd love to hear from you. The number is 1-800-892-6477. 1-800-892-6477. You can also send an email to exchange at nhpr.org. So, so Laura, what was it like for you coming back to your home state, becoming a host of a uh, daily news program and becoming known not just as Laura Kanoy from Keene High School, as you said, but, but becoming known as Laura Kanoy, the host of The Exchange, a public figure in your you, home state. You know, I actually have been always very uncomfortable with celebrity journalism um, because I have always felt like the focus should be on the people who are kind enough, brave enough, generous enough to share their stories. Or the focus should be on the issues that we're trying to untangle for the listeners Um, I just, I don't know, maybe because I started as a reporter, I just have never been that comfortable with the celebrity aspect. Um, Just for an example, Peter, early on, about a year or two into the show, Scott said to me, um, such and such group wants you to come speak at their annual meeting. And I was like, why would they want me to do that? You know, and he said, Laura, you know, you're a known quantity. And I just, I don't know. So I've had to get comfortable with that. And that's okay. About 10 years ago, um, the station was updating its website, 
And the person who was doing it, you know, they're doing little profiles. And and um, I've had to get used to my picture being out there, which being in radio, I don't love. Um, but she said, and, you know, can you just tell me what you're reading right now? And I thought, well, who cares what I'm reading right now? But it's part of this whole sort of getting to know you, getting... Um, so I've not been comfortable with the sort of celebrity aspect of this, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that can be difficult for people in radio who might be drawn to the medium because you're not generally seen. <laughs> well, but, there is that. Yeah, and, and you've done you've done live events as well. I mean, have you enjoyed those over the years? Yeah, those have been great. And people often say, you know, oh, I love meeting the, seeing the face um, behind the microphone. And I always like to say I enjoy meeting the ears behind the radio. So it's been great getting out and meeting listeners. I love that. That is good. Well, well, let's hear from some listeners, and let's start with Steve in Nottingham. Steve, thank you very much for calling. What would you like to say to Laura? Uh, first of all, I want to say hello and I love you, okay? Oh, Steve. <laughs> That's really I, nice. You've I, been my most, like, one of my most reliable callers, so thank you. Well, you, you, well, you've made me famous because I'm known throughout um, southern New Hampshire as Steve from Nottingham. <laughs> That's and, awesome. Uh, and I, there was many stories I told, and I was sensitive to one, so I'll give you that one. Uh, first of all, the reason I love the show and I've always uh, become a frequent flyer is that you have given voice to the people of New Hampshire. I've always been astonished with how people from Dixville Notch or someone in Keene comes up with an idea that I never thought of. I mean, you gave a place for people to hear people of New Hampshire. It was a terrific forum. So my story was that you gave uh, people, you gave personhood to the the homeless. Some of your shows were about the homeless people of New Hampshire, and I've worked with the homeless, and I realize that's a stereotype, and it doesn't tell you it's a homeless person. And I remember one person who was a homeless person living in the woods of Londonderry, and I was just so astonishing that that type of history and story could be told. That's what I want to thank you for. Oh, my gosh, Steve. Steve. And he's reminding me of another story. Um, And thank you so much, Steve. And he's right. Like, we tried to. That's the beauty of live radio is you can fold in those voices that might not be heard, that aren't going to be found with a a journalist doing his or her best work with a microphone, but still. And I remember once we did a show on, um, I think it was voter ID and stricter voter ID requirements. And a guy called who was homeless did not have an ID. It was summertime, so he was living in a canoe on the Merrimack River. Hmm. And he said, where am I going to get an ID? I don't have an address. I live in a canoe on the Merrimack River. I like, I've never forgotten that story. So, Steve, thank you for reminding me of those stories. That's great. Yeah, Steve, thank you very much for your call. Uh, Laura, we also get this email from Michael who says, My students and I will always remember Laura so graciously interacting with us after the 2018 gubernatorial debates hosted at our college. She was on point as the moderator, and my students learned so much from her that day, which was evident from their individual reflection papers about being part of the event. Over the years, I've shared segments from many episodes of The Exchange in my college business classes, and I want Laura to know the uh, want Laura to know the impact she has made on me as an educator, as well as the major positive impressions impressions she has had on my students. Thank you for so many great years as host of the Exchange, Laura. That's from uh, Professor Michael Magoon. So. Well, that's great. And in addition to providing a voice for the overlooked, as Steve said, I hope that we've provided an educational forum for you know 
anybody. But um, I love that comment from a student, um, from, a, from a professor, because I do feel like the show has been, you know, a massive education for the state. So that's great. Uh, listeners, if you have questions or comments for Laura, give us a call, one 800 8926477. Uh, I want to spend a little more time Laura talking about uh, the the way you went about doing your job and, and one of the one of the ways you did it is that you know you were uh, doing your job while also raising a family. What was that like for you? Ooh, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyone who's, you know, tried to work a demanding job and have has had kids will know this feeling and Peter, it's never good enough. So you're either never good enough as a parent or you're never good enough as a professional. And, um, you know, as a parent, I never went on a single field trip. You know, sometimes my kids would say, Mom, how come you never go? You know, Susan's mother goes. Well, sorry. (laughs) Um, I never contributed to volunteer efforts at the school. I might have, like, flung some, you know, grocery store cupcakes at the bake sale. Like, (laughs) I never did, was able to do that as fully as I might have liked. And then, you know, on the work side, um, you know, I didn't join sort of committees at work. I probably didn't do all the extra trainings that I could have done. Um, I definitely didn't have the close relationship with people at work that I might have had if I hadn't had kids. But Basically, I was coming in, doing the show, leaving before they got home from school around 2 o'clock, and and that was kind of it. So, um, you know, I think any working parent can relate to that feeling that you're not giving either your all. But um, in the end, as I've gotten older, I just think, okay, that's... That's okay. Like, everybody just does the best they can. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of training, how did you go about learning the finer points of hosting a program like this? Listeners may not be aware that, you know, we're not just having a one-on-one conversation. The host is reading notes from producers, you know, scanning through emails and trying to figure out which calls to take. It's it's multitasking at its finest. How how did you learn how to do that? Wow. That's a really good question. Um... I mean, let's see. So I was a reporter, so I knew how to interview people. And then I was also um, a newscaster, as I said, at NPR. And also I was the, before I was a newscaster at NPR, I was the weekend news host um, for morning edition, so weekend edition. And I subbed for the weekend edition, I'm sorry, for the morning edition host, so the Rick Ganley of WAMU. So that's a big multitasky job. You know, you're Mm -hmm. playing audio and you're... um, you know, you're reading copy and you're trying to hit your breaks. Um, actually, I have a story about when I was a weekend edition host. Let's hear it. I'd love to hear And it. my team knows that um, I am not in any way, shape, or form a sports person. I know nothing about professional sports. I just, so we did not grow up in a sporty family. So one time I was on the air on a Saturday morning and um, the Buffalo Sabres, I guess that's a hockey team. I am not a sports so, person. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, because I know nothing about sports, I said the Buffalo Sabres. And the phones... The phones lit up. Lit up. <laughs> and of course, it was a Saturday morning. So it's just me. You know, I don't have an engineer or anything because this is like 1980, whatever. So in between station breaks, I had to go to the phone and say, I know it's the Sabres. Thank you for calling. I know it's the Sabres. Thank you for calling. Like, I still have never been able to live that down. The Buffalo Sabres. You should have seen the phones, Peter. Woo! <laughs> I've heard similar stories at I other stations. I had a stations, dog yeah. barking in the background once because my colleague John Greenberg mm-hmm. brought his dog in to do some just work over the weekend. Big, big sheepdog. And I had the door open like, you know, it's 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning, right? Who's there? And all of a sudden I hear, woof, 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 woof. 
anyway. More common now than back then, perhaps. All radio people have stories like this. Yeah. Uh, Let's go to the phones and talk to Buzz in Portsmouth. Buzz, thank you for calling. Hi. uh, uh, This is Buzz Sure, Laura. Hi, Buzz. Um, I've been a guest innumerable number of times on the exchange, but I wanted to hearken back to some of the most fun I've had ever uh, with a member of the media is when we were doing the impeachment trial of Chief Justice Brock back in 2000. Right. That was a big story. That went on for weeks. I know. It was for me. It was like growing up, I always wanted to be a a baseball broadcaster, uh, (laughs) which I never got to do. But but this was this was like as good as it gets as a lawyer is being a uh, color commentator. uh, Right. I remember that. You did a marvelous job. It was very difficult to translate. You were wonderful at translating this arcane legal stuff into, uh, uh, you know, a weeks long uh, rendition of uh, impeachment trial. Right. Well, you were awesome, too, and you really bailed us out. And that's one of the big stories that some people who just moved to the state, right, Buzz, or some of our younger listeners might not remember. A Supreme Court justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court was impeached in in 2000, I think it was. And that was a huge story. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. More importantly to the story, of course, was... uh, my uh, younger daughter was born during that trial. Oh my gosh! Um, so yeah, but you were wonderful. You, you know your ability to, you know, it's, it's one thing to plan a show and, uh, and with your executive producer. It's another thing to be, uh, you know, broadcasting as events were occurring and trying to lend meaning to it. And you were just fabulous. Oh, thanks, Buzz. Well, you bailed us out many times. So <laughs> right back at you. Thanks, Buzz. Appreciate the call. Uh, Listeners, if you have questions or comments for Laura, 1-800-892-6477 or email exchange at nhpr.org. Laura, over over the years, you've you've filled in for Diane Rehm on her national call-in program. Uh, What what, what was that like? Wow. Um, Well, first of all, it almost felt easier because um, she has a huge team. Um, and my team is small but mighty. Um, <laughs> so uh, she has a huge team. Also, when I was down there, I was not also trying to be a mother at the same time. So all I had to do was work. So um, in one sense, it felt easier. Um, but she does two hours. So obviously, that's very challenging. So, um, yeah, I, I, do you, do you it was exciting. Do you get nervous with a bigger audience like that? Is that does that have any impact, or are you just you no, and the microphone and the audience? No, doesn't matter how at many some people? point it's just a microphone in a studio, and you're not really cognizant of how many people are listening. I see. Okay, uh, we get this note from uh, Brad Cook, uh, chair of the New Hampshire Ballot Law Commission. Uh, who says, Laura Canoy has been one of the gems of New Hampshire over these 25 years. Her contribution to civil discourse and her neutrally asked questions, allowing for informed answers, and her ability to follow up with good probing questions to pin down interviewees, not allowing them off the hook, have been very professional journalism. Her programs on voting and civic engagement and her work with the Rudman Center at UNH School of Law will be remembered and missed. Uh, It is too bad, Brad continues, that NHPR is not continuing the program, especially the Friday News Roundup, as that is a unique service in our state. Best wishes on her, to her on her next adventure. That's the note from Brad Cook. Uh, thank you very much, Brad. Appreciate the note. Uh, and and let's, uh, let's take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll continue speaking with Laura.
Laura. Uh, she hosted The Exchange for 25 years. She stepped down last week. Uh, the show is ending at the end of this month. Uh, and after break, we'll talk about some of her encounters with presidential candidates and other interviewees of note. Uh, so, listeners, what questions do you have for her? Email exchange at nhpr.org or call one 800 892-6477. That's 1-800-892-6477. This is The Exchange. I'm Peter Biello. We'll be right back. Tomorrow on The Exchange, we'll speak with Annette Gordon-Reed, historian and author of the new book on Juneteenth. As the holiday celebrating the end of slavery in the United States approaches, we're taking a moment to reflect on what this means. Gordon Reed grew up in Texas, where Juneteenth has a special meaning. Join us for that conversation tomorrow morning, live at 9 on NHPR. Right now, we're speaking with Laura Kanoy, who has been the standard bearer for public radio interviewers and who, over the past 25 years, has had her fair share of noteworthy guests on the program, including presidential candidates. We're going to spend some time uh, in this hour talking about that. Uh, So let's reminisce with Laura, and please join us. Our number is 1-800-892-6477, 1-800-892-6477. You can also send an email exchange at nhpr.org is the address. And Laura, before we get into the presidential candidates, I did want to share this one note from Nancy. This is kind of funny. So she says, uh, first of all, she says, thank you. Thank you for your service. You made a difference. Uh, And then Nancy continues, a funny memory. Many, many years ago, two days before Christmas, there was a show about sewage. Half the audience was incensed that the show was about sewage two days before Christmas. <laughs> and the other half was clamoring to get more info and make comments. Oh, my God. So you had to promise to do another show to follow up on sewage. Do you remember the sewage no, show? No, I don't remember anything <laughs> like that. I do remember doing shows about sewage and um, telling new producers who, you know, occasionally would say, oh, we should, you know, this is an issue we should look at. And I would say. Okay, get ready. Um, that was always quite controversial. Um, no, I don't remember that. Oh, I feel terrible. The, the sewage show uh, es- escapes the... Me- we'll see if we can dig it up from the archives. We should have done it after an election. That would have been more appropriate, right? <laughs> and apparently there was a follow-up show. There was sewage part yeah. two. well... <laughs> okay. Uh, well, uh, let's let's talk about some of these presidential candidate interviews, because, wow, what a privilege of the job right. to be yeah. on, the, on the forefront of, of talking with people running for president. And, of course, New Hampshire affords special opportunities for that. Uh, can you tell us about some of the more memorable interviews with uh, would-be and wannabe presidents? Oh, my gosh. We could do a follow-up show just on that, Peter, <laughs> right. right? 25 <laughs> years. That's a lot of presidential candidates. And I should have sat down before this interview and counted how many, because... I don't know, maybe a hundred, because there's so many people who test the waters, even if they don't actually announce. So memorable. Okay, George Pataki, do you remember him? Mm -hmm. Republican governor of New York. He came in, he was testing the waters. And I guess he hadn't had a a lot of these people will campaign for like two hours before the show. So I guess he hadn't had time to eat. So at the first station break, his staff comes running into the studio with this big bagel with cream cheese. And he starts eating it. And I said, Governor... You know, we have 60 seconds. Like, you have 60 seconds to eat that bagel. <laughs> so uh, I had to kind of boss him around. Um, uh, John Edwards was very late, very late. Like, I was reading the introduction as he came in. Um, and I had it all scratched out saying, you know, we hope joining us soon will be. And I had that prepared. And he walked in, like, as I was reading the introduction. Also, most candidates are happy with 
um, tea or coffee. John Edwards needed Diet Coke, which obviously we didn't have. So uh, that was that was a little stressful. I remember um, John Kasich and John McCain. Those names are, I'm sure, familiar to you, Peter, and many of our listeners. They really seem to enjoy the back and forth, the sort of intellectual banter that you have. Um, and that was just really refreshing. With the two of them, I did not feel like they were reading me talking points. I just felt like they were really talking to me. And we were having a, an enjoyable intellectual back and forth. Um, Carly Fiorina, Martin O'Malley seem put off by the sort of tough questions and the, oh, really? Well, what about this? You know, that anybody would do with a presidential candidate. They um, they didn't seem to like those questions very much. And I remember thinking, okay, you're going to meet journalists a lot tougher than like Laura Kanoy in New Hampshire. So <laughs> better learn how now. So um, that was really interesting. Um, gosh. Well, let me ask I'd you go this on forever. From, uh, Leo's got a question about presidential candidates. He wrote in to say, uh, when interviewing presidential candidates, was there ever a response to a question that surprised you in how they answered or maybe an answer that caught you off guard? Mm, now that's caught me off guard. Um, wow. Gosh, I'm sorry. There have been so, so many. We might have to come back to that. We we'll ha might have perhaps. to come back to that. Um, I did have a moment that caught the presidential, well, try and catch presidential candidates off guard a lot, but um, there was a story about Al Gore. I don't know if you want to hear Oh, yes. That Let, one, let's, Peter. Hear, let's hear Al Gore. Yeah, story. and I'm sorry for the listener. I can't remember, but honestly, I think I've interviewed 100 presidential candidates. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry about that. Um, Yes. Well, when Al Gore was running for president while he was vice president, and this is the big disputed election of 2000. So the primary buildup is in 1999. So he was doing a lot of campaigning around the state. I had just had a baby, um, my first. So I was not hosting the show, um, but I wanted to have my baby's picture taken with the vice president of the United States, right? Because that's what you do. It's the vice president. It's the president, you know. So I brought my then three-month-old into the station. Al Gore did the interview with the sub-host, Jill Kaufman, who was wonderful. She took over for me in that first maternity leave. So he comes out, and um, I wanted a picture of the vice president with my baby. So I gave the baby to the vice president, and he started, he, the baby, started <laughs> screaming, 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 screaming. And <laughs> I hope my oldest isn't listening. He was a screamer. And he turned beet red and um, Al Gore turned beet red. Well, Al Gore turned several shades of red. My baby was <laughs> the reddest. Uh, I don't know. He looked possessed or something. Um, and we took a picture and I was so embarrassed. I was like, sorry, Mr. Vice President. <laughs> and um, he handed the baby back to me. Later that day, one of my colleagues who had a very dry sense of humor said, hey, Laura, here your son's a Republican. <laughs> It took me a minute to get it because obviously I was so traumatized. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> a lot of moments like that. Well, well let's go to the phones and talk to uh, Steve in Concord. Steve, thanks for calling. I just uh, wanted to know who Laura's favorite presidential candidate was to interview, both on, I guess, the Republican and Democratic side, just to be fair. Who was the most fun that you think you learned the most from and that did the best job at talking about issues on a substantive way. Well, Steve, thanks very much. Ooh, and you know, Steve, don't think that I'm punting, because I'm not, but I never, ever, ever answer 
favorite or least favorite because I don't want to trash somebody on the air. That wouldn't be in within my personality, um, and I wouldn't want to like people to sort of guess my politics if I say this person was my favorite. I will say, as I said earlier, um, that you know John McCain was a real pleasure to interview, and you really felt like you were talking to someone who was listening to what you were saying and responding to what you were saying and considering what you were saying, not just going, you know, talking point A, talking point B, talking point C. So um, that's one that stands out. I also interviewed John McCain four times, twice during his first attempt and twice during his second attempt. So that's one that jumps out, Steve. But um, gosh, on the Democratic side, um, I've interviewed so many. Oof. Help me out, Peter. <laughs> what was, uh, I, I, I saw we were passing around uh, photos of you interviewing notable people, and, and among them was former President Obama. Was that an interesting interview from your perspective? Well, you know, there's two Obamas. There's the sort of great order Obama who kind of wowed everybody at that 2004 Democratic convention. And then there's law school professor Obama. Um, so that's the more sort of, you know, serious and measured. And I got law school um, Obama <laughs> that day. So that was OK. It wasn't what I expected because um, I had watched, you know, fantastic orator uh, Obama. So um, but yes, I did interview Obama. Hillary Clinton kind of had a reputation of being sort of aloof or cold, but I found her very warm, very engaging. Um, so that was a that was a good interview. Mm -hmm. Has the nature of these interviews over time changed as our political climate and the way we talk about politics changed, or have the candidates remained mostly the same? You know, I would say that the candidate interviews haven't changed that much over the years because. Um, you know, anyone who's going to win the presidency has to has to I want to say has to have some broad appeal, but that's no longer the case, is it? So um, I think they haven't changed as much as you might think. I think the interviews for levels down ballot have changed more. The thing that's changed the most, I think, Peter, is that in the early years, candidates give you gave you more time. I mean, I, candidates would routinely come on twice, sometimes three times. Some of them wanted to come on four times, but we were like, no, no, that's too much. <laughs> so I think that's the difference is that candidates hung out in New Hampshire more and gave us more time. Mm -hmm. And and what about, you know, balance of parties coming to the program? I'm, I don't obviously have as long a history here as you do, but I remember in 2016, you know, primaries for both major parties on both sides. Um, we had a lot of Democrats come in and do forums with you, but I believe only one, John Kasich, came in on the Republican side. And there, there were many others who, who, who didn't come. Maybe they didn't accept invitations or just couldn't because of timing. But is it, is it changing? Are we seeing fewer Republicans on our airways over the years? Well, um, I would say that's more the case again. Yeah, I would say that's more the case. It's definitely been the case down ballot. And in the case of presidential candidates. Yes, I would say earlier on, Peter, everyone came. Hmm. Everyone came. And that's disappointing to me because, honestly, in the early years, um, you may remember Bob Smith, former U.S. senator, very conservative. He and I had a great relationship. He would come on whenever we asked, along with, you know, the Democratic members of Congress. Um, so that's disappointing to me because I do see this and anybody who listens to the show knows that this is a fair and open forum to exchange ideas. And it is disappointing to me that um, people want to ascribe politics to it and say, nah, that's not worth it because uh, it's worth it. 
Um, and, and that was different 25 years ago, for sure. Listeners, we're speaking with Laura Kanoy about her incredible career hosting The Exchange on NHPR. If you have questions for her or maybe a memory of a show that sticks in your memory, uh, give us a call now so you can share it with her. Our number, one 800 892 Six four seven seven one eight hundred eight nine two six four seven seven, and let's talk to Reeve in Wolfboro. Reeve, thank you very much for calling. You're on the air. It's my total pleasure. I have a couple of things I want to comment on. Um, there's a study of there's a study that um, every town or city that has a local paper actually keeps their costs down, and it's because everybody's able to keep their eye on the elected officials and be informed and be a community and be brought together. And that's what I feel as though the exchange has done for us for all of these years, that I feel like you you did that for all of New Hampshire. Um, So I have one other thing I want to say, but I think that's the most critical thing that you could understand, Laura, that you've made us more a community, the exchange you built, and I hope it keeps on. And the, um, and the, the, quality of your capacity for conversing is very rare. I think even most people having Thanksgiving dinners with their families are aware that it's hard for people to sound as respectful and warm as you always did. And because we lead the nation in elections and you got to speak to everybody, I feel as though you not only changed that for us in New Hampshire and for every guest, but you changed it for the nation. And I realize it doesn't seem like it took, but <laughs> but it. Um, I think that's one of the most extraordinary things about your tenure here is that you brought respect to every single person every single time. Oh, Reeve, that's great. Thank you. My one yeah, other thank, thing oh, I would go for it, Reeve. Yeah. The one other thing I would like to say is for all of us who would like to lobby you to keep the exchange going. How do we do that most effectively? And it's okay if you can't find a superstar like Laura. You have a beautiful bench of fabulous reporters, and we would love it. Well, Reeve, thank you very much. Laura, what do you have to say? Well, um, I think the loss of the exchange, we should not sugarcoat it. It's a big loss for the exact reasons that Reeve described and that we've talked about. To have this rare, trusted space where people can come together and have a civilized discussion that's always been the goal, and um, yeah, it's disappointing. Mm-hmm. Well, Reeve, thank you for your for your comments. Jeez, who's chopping onions in here? I can't even. Sarah wanted to know um, uh, what inspired you to dedicate your career to news and public affairs interviews. Oh wow, that's a good question. Um, well, Sarah, um, I actually I've always loved talking to people. And when I was little, you know, five, six, seven, eight, um, I used to make these little fake magazines and fake newspapers, and I would interview my mom, and I'd interview my cat. That is so cute. And, um, yeah, <laughs> I still have these um, fake magazines and stuff. And um, in my Girl Scout troop, um, I used to make a newspaper called, you know, Troop 88 News or whatever troop it was. So I always liked talking to people, and I always liked knowing what was going on. And I always like to write. So I guess those three things kind of um, converged. So yeah, it's a good question. And Carol in Peterborough writes in uh, saying, is there an issue or a show idea that you really pushed because it was important to you or you thought it was a great idea and the producers never went for it? Hmm. Uh, So the 
the process of working as a team is super collaborative and people present ideas and we talk about it and we say, what's the listener piece? Can listeners come in into a conversation, into a dialogue? There are a lot of issues that are really good stories. Um, they might make a great 10-minute piece or five-minute piece on Morning Edition, but you can't create a dialogue or a conversation about them. So um, sure, I mean, everybody in our meetings would present ideas and Eight times out of 10, everybody would say, yeah, that's a great idea. But, you know, two times out of 10 ideas, mine included, the rest of the team would go, mm, not really hearing it. So, sure, there were times when, you know, the producers would say, no, I'm not really hearing it. And upon reflection, I would say, yeah, they're right. I mean, we have such respect for each other as a team. So why would I put something on the air where my trusted, incredibly smart, hardworking producers said, no, nah, I'm not hearing it? I would say, okay. They're right. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go to the phones again and talk to Nick in Pembroke. Nick, thanks for calling. You're on the air. No problem. Um, hi, hi, Laura. Thank you. I just want to say congratulations on your next phase of life, and thank you for all the other years of shows. Um, I specifically wanted to say thank you for your attention to LGBT issues um, in the state. Um, I can't remember before of there ever being someone who really focused on that, and also particularly on transgender issues. I know you've had my friend Chloe LaCasse on the show a couple of times, so I just wanted to say thank you for that. Oh, wow, Nick. Well, it, this may, I, I don't know. I mean, we're all, we're all human, right? So I'm just trying to bring humanity and, um, I don't know, at the risk of sounding corny, like could we all just get along and love each other? I mean, wouldn't the world be a better place? So you're just heartily welcome, Nick. Let's go to the phones again and talk to uh, Representative uh, Jerry Knurk in Freedom. Jerry, thanks for calling. Yeah, hi. Uh, well, I just wanted to thank Laura for her the ideas that her program and she has given me for bills to file. I'm not sure where I'm going to get my sources of ideas for bills to file now. <laughs> um, this is, uh, yes, I, I used to call in. Uh, yeah, Jerry, it's great to hear from you. Yeah, but I uh, one of them you had Rick Vandepoel on. They were talking about wild mushrooms, and he commented about finding a poisonous wild mushroom in a grocery store, right? And that there was no good system about that. So I filed a bill to develop a system of uh, licensure and certification for wild mushroom foragers, so that they could be certified and we could know that they were selling proper things. Um, which died a COVID death last year, but then got through the legislature this year and was just signed into law by the governor. And because you heard it on the show, out, Jerry. Yes, exactly. Oh, and my gosh, time, that's so was, funny. You, you were talking about gerrymandering, and I was, had a, a, I was waiting on, on hold to, uh, to get on the air. never made it on the air, but during that time, thought of an idea for using a computer modeling system for uh, actually drawing the districts, which I then turned into a bill and filed that one. Uh, but unfortunately, that one never got through. There was just not an interest in reforming how we did our, <laughs> our redistricting. But I did file that bill. Wow. And, uh and that one also was one that I, that one I didn't, I must say, I got the idea while listening. But the other one came directly from hearing about it. Rick Vanderpoel actually played a part in developing that mushroom bill, along with some other people. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you very much, uh, Representative Kirk. Really appreciate it. And, and he seems to be proving Reeve, our previous caller, right, that you really had an impact on the fabric of New Hampshire society. Well, it's just been so great to have this forum where people can come in from all across the state and just share ideas. I can add that, Jerry, now to my list of accomplishments, helped sponsor Mushroom Bill. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, we've got so much to talk to and more callers to take, but let's take a quick break. Uh, but we'd still love to hear from you. If you haven't had a chance, we've still got some time left for you to reach out to Laura. 
Uh, send us an email. The address is exchange at nhpr.org. Or give us a call. Our number, 1-800-892-6477. We'll reminisce about a few uh, past shows that have meaning to Laura after a quick break. This is The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello. We'll be right back. This is The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello, and we're speaking this hour with Laura Canoy, who is no stranger to this hour on NHPR. She's hosted The Exchange for 25 years, but last week she hosted her last episode. We are reflecting on her career and on The Exchange, which is ending at the end of this month. Uh, Laura Canoy, thank you very much for being on the program today. And listeners, uh, give us a call if you've got a question or a comment for her, uh, 1-800-892-6477. Laura, what shows or topics, uh, looking back, uh, really stick in your mind as being like, wow, that was a significant broadcast moment for the exchange? Wow, yeah. I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, because as you know, Peter, in the last 25 years, Concord, Manchester, Nashua, to some smaller extent, Laconia, have been designated refugee resettlement cities by the U.S. State Department. And we have had these folks on the air telling us their stories Um, And I'm just tracing, you know, the arc of conflicts in the world, Um, you know, Bosnia in the 90s, then uh, Iraq, Sudan, Somalia, Syria, Nepal. And um, to have these people come on the air, talk about what they've been through, talk about their hopes and dreams for this country. It's just been so moving to me. They have been through so much. And I'm just amazed by their resilience and their strength and their optimism. And I always get off the air with those shows saying, I will never complain again. (laughs) You know, I have my nice little middle class life. Um, That's been really moving to me. Well, let's uh, get a reminder of of why this program was so moving in particular. Uh, Here is Carolyn Musimi-Kamal, program manager for the New American Africans program at the Organization of Refugee and Immigrant Success. Uh, She joined you to talk about how refugee communities are finding resilience during the pandemic uh, and the challenges of the pandemic from that perspective. First of all, it offers uh, an opportunity to have a fresh start. Um, It also gives an opportunity for families to grow together. I've seen the youth advance in so many ways, uh, go to high school, go to college, uh, build a career, and uh, start all over again, as opposed to if they stayed in that situation in a refugee camp where there was no hope and there was no certainty of what was going to be, uh, what was going to be the next step in their life. And also for the parents. Some of the parents were injured during war, others were injured and affected um, by trauma and by the effects or the aftermath of famine, of war, and other situations that caused people to migrate as refugees. Well, and Carolyn, you're clearly a parent working at home. That's the world we live in now. I think it's great. And um, we've heard dogs barking and doors slamming on other programs. And I myself am broadcasting from home, but I have teenagers. So of course, they're still asleep. So um, we're really glad that you're just trying to juggle it all and be with us today. Laura Canoy, that's quite a moment. 
Yeah, well, and there have been so many other moments. I remember a Rwandan refugee um, talking about, you know, fleeing people with machetes, you know, in the back of a, a pickup truck. He was 14 years old, holding onto his brother's hands so tightly. At the time, my older boy was 14. I mean, just incredible, incredible, incredible stories. And these folks are so strong and so resilient and um uh, it's just been great over the years to see them, you know, coming to the state and now they're running nonprofits, they're running businesses, you know. Um, so that's been just inspiring to me. I uh, mentioned uh, doing things from home during the pandemic. We're yes. in the studio together <laughs> now, but you were at home hosting remotely for most of the year. What was that like for you? That was great, actually. And huge shout out to um, R.J. Perkins. Um, our, one of our former uh, engineers, he really got me set up comfy, cozy, Peter. Um, it was great. So between RJ and then Dan Colgan, our engineer here, they really made it sing. The producers and I figured out a way to communicate. Um, I think our team stayed really close during the pandemic, um, which sounds weird, I know, but... Um, yeah, that was good. I also ate really well because, like, I had the kitchen. I had the fridge, you know, whereas when I was working here, you know, it's grab a granola bar for breakfast. Oops, I forgot to bring lunch, you know. Um, so I really liked working from home. That was great. Okay. Since you mentioned eating well, I have to ask about how you drink Coke before a <laughs> broadcast. I've never heard of anyone, like, not not just, like, just never really drinking a soda before a broadcast, but that's your thing, right? Like, you've done that. Only I drink <laughs> Coke, not Diet Coke. Um, None of this Coke Zero I like the, stuff. No, it's just I like the real Coke. thing. Um, I don't drink it that much, but my team knows, like, when things are really bad and I'm really exhausted, um, I yeah, I drink a Coke. And usually it's um, the day after an election, where I've been up till, you know, one, one o'clock in the morning. I get about four hours of sleep, and then I have to come back in and tell everybody what happened in the election. So that's when the Coke comes out, and the Coke comes out during debates. I'm not drinking a Coke right now. Nope. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is just fun. All right. Well, I, I, worth asking you about. So <laughs> what, a, what a factoid. Uh, let's go to the phones again and talk to Scott in Concord. Scott, thank you very much for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Laura. Oh, hi, hi. Scott. After 25 years, this is my first time calling, and I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, you've made such a difference to the state of New Hampshire. You've made understanding complex issues easier, you know, like education funding and tax policy. But I think import more importantly, you made sad topics easy to comprehend and, and help the state come to grips with sometimes terrible events um, like the Colbrook shooting, 9-11, and, yeah. and natural disasters. You know, you really helped connect New Hampshire to itself, uh, and it's this statewide connection that I think is going to be missed. Uh, NHPR won't be the same without you, and uh, NHPR will not be the same without the exchange. So I just wanted to call in and say thank you for Well, everything. wait, wait, Scott. Can I out you? <laughs> That's up to you. <laughs> this is Scott McPherson, um, the first producer of the exchange. Scott and I started the show together, just the two of us. Um, 25 and a half, right, Scott, years ago. And, yep. um, you know, it was just you and me, and um, we got it on the air in two weeks, and, and we made it work, didn't we? So thank you right back at you, Scott. It's yeah. really and great to hear from you. And I should say not every show was as high-minded as tax policy, and, and no. there was the bagel show and the <laughs> kayaking show and yeah. a few cooking shows, yep. but we... We made it work, and I think it's uh, it's going to be missed. 
and and I'm not just saying that because I was there at the beginning. Right. I, I'm saying it because I think it's it was a service to the community well after I left the show, um, but you remained and you made it uh, just a daily part of my listening as well. So. Oh, Scott, that's great. And you know, Peter, what he says is so it's so relevant. Like the show doesn't always work. I mean, that's kind of in a way, hosting a live show is good for your general attitude towards life because there's no way you can have a show five days a week live that's going to be perfect every day. It's just not. And, you know, Scott mentioned some of the goofy shows we did, um, especially a show about bagels. What were we thinking? (laughs) But um, so it doesn't always work. But then you just kind of pick yourself up and go, okay, it'll be better tomorrow, you know, and you you just have to keep plowing through it. It's a good metaphor for life, actually. Wow. Well, thanks. Thanks for the call, Scott. Really appreciate it. And, and you know, to his point about making uh, sad topics uh, uh, compelling radio. I mean, Laura, what what frame of mind do you put yourself in to make sure that those topics are addressed with the kind of tone uh, and and approach that that seems appropriate? Well, um, we obviously don't gawk or go into um, salacious, gory details. Um, I talked earlier about my fundamental value of respect for humanity. Um, I too easily put myself in that position. I mean, when there's, you know, when there's a shooting at a school, you know, I'm that parent. I mean, I can 100% put myself in that position. And um, it actually makes it really hard to host those shows because I just, you know, I just feel terrible for those people and I feel terrible that those things happen. So I try to approach it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to the phones again and talk to Representative Munji Pudi of Nashua. Thank you very much for calling. You're on the air. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Laura. Namaste. And you have been such a great voice in our community. And, you know, I commute from Nashua to Concord, and you were my companion. Your show was my companion when I went up to Concord. And especially what rings in my head is the time you hosted the roundtable about the opioid addiction and how each community is uh, responding to in Nashua Public Library. Oh, right. We did a live event down there. Right, right. Go ahead. Yes. And you were so, you know, your compassion, your humanity, your core values come through and to engage that kind of a dialogue and engage people in the community. It's very powerful. Another fun event for me was when you were at uh, Pago Hodes' surprise party in Concord, uh, then Congressman Hodes' wife. And, uh, you know, and I said, oh, this is Laura Kanoi. Oh, she's the real person. And I heard your voice. Surprise! And it was real. I felt like I met a friend. Yeah. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you see your teacher at the grocery store and you think, do they not live at school? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for calling. Yes, Representative. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. We we get this note from Grace who says, thank you, Laura, for bringing 60 Minutes of Focus to so many subjects every weekday. This has been such a wonderful forum, mostly for New Hampshire-focused topics. Your hour call-in forums with Dr. Benjamin Chan during the pandemic were especially powerful. Uh, and, and let's take another phone call while we have some time. Peggy from Hollis, thank you very much for calling. Hi, Laura. i long-time listener, I think maybe from year 25. Um, <laughs> uh, but I want to say thanks uh, for during this pandemic for bringing in uh, Dr. Chan, Dr. Talbot, 
and asking questions in a way that really helped people understand um, the complexity of the virus. Because, you know, sometimes scientists can speak scientific ways in a way that makes it hard for people to, to know and be reassured and say, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. But you could somehow, as, as with so many guests, you frame the question in a way that we can say, oh, I get it. Well, you're welcome. And praise also goes to my excellent senior producer, Christina Phillips. She produced all those Chan Talbot shows, as we called them. And so, um, you know, we really wrestled with those questions. So Christina gets big, big credit uh, for that clarity as well. So thanks for the call, Peggy. Well, we, we promised that we would ask a little bit about what you will be doing post-life at the, at the exchange. Uh, you're not retiring. Uh, what will you be doing, Laura? Well... Um, as I said earlier, not old enough, not rich enough to retire. So I hope to be doing some, you know, some work, Peter, making money. I have two kids still, uh, college age. So, you know, speaking, writing, maybe helping people with podcasts. I would love to do some voiceover work. Um, I did that earlier in my career and that was really fun. So, um, if anybody listening needs voiceovers, call me. Um, and, um, but the biggest thing I'm going to be doing this summer besides, resting, <laughs> is putting the finishing touches on my first novel, Peter. Um, That's exciting. It is exciting. I finished the last word on Memorial Day weekend, but as someone who's been edited every single day of her life, you know, I know the first draft is not the last draft. So um, I'm going to put that in good shape and then try and find an agent for my novel. So again, listeners, if you know anybody who wants to represent me, <laughs> I could use an agent for my first novel because I, I really don't know what I'm doing with a novel in terms of marketing it and publishing it and all that. So I need help. Well, I know some novelists don't really want to talk too much about their novels. Is that true for you as no. well? Or do you, uh, How much time do you have? <laughs> Not much, unfortunately, but like we'd love to hear a little bit if you've got some Cliff Notes ideas. Of I do have Cliff Notes. Yeah. Thank you. It's historical fiction which is my favorite genre. And I think historical fiction gives people an opening to appreciating history, you know, in a way that they might not just picking up a sort of historical tome. So it, it's a historical fiction story based heavily, heavily on fact. It's a story that pulls together the threads of World War I and World War II far beyond just, you know, the Versailles Treaty and Germany had to swallow harsh terms. It's an immigration story. It's an economic story. It's about the ideals of the French Revolution, you know, liberty, equality, and brotherhood clashing, as we see in World War II, with the more medieval France, you know, suspicious, anti-Semitic. It's a story that was given to me by um, a friend of mine, an older friend, who was a hidden child in World War II. She was Jewish. Her mother had to hide her in a convent. And um, all the family was hidden, all the children. And she shared that story with me many, many years ago, and I'm finally getting a chance to tell it. Wow. Well, Laura, this has been an incredible uh, conversation, and what a what a career, uh, what a good influence you've been for the journalists here at NHPR, myself included. We're very grateful for you. Thank you so much for everything you've done for NHPR and for New Hampshire. Well, Peter, I want to say thank you for being my number one backup host and for taking the roundup when I was too tired to do five days a week <laughs> a couple of years ago and for just making it sing every week. You've just been an awesome colleague. And I want to thank my team, too. My exchange team, you know I love you, and um, just super happy to be able to work with you. That's very nice of you to say. Thank you very much, Laura. Uh, the senior producer, Christina Phillips, produced today's show, and the show's producers are Jessica Hunt and Jane Vaughn. 
The engineer is Dan Colgan. Michael Brindley is our program manager, and our regular theme music was composed by Bob Lord. Reach out to Laura through nhpr.org. If you've got more to say, you can also comment on our Facebook page, NHPR Exchange. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you so much for listening. The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. And thanks.